time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Let's start with the news while we're waiting for our main guest here. There are some things that would be great, Neil. What do you have on the docket in terms of news? What about this uh, global minimum tax rate of 15% that the U.S. Treasury uh, supports? Yeah. Um, it seems really strange to me. I mean, I'm not a tax expert. But like, I am I am not either, so maybe we're not adding any value. But I do think um, the supply chain problems have probably exacerbated this, trying to keep companies stable. Hello. Is that Marcus joining Good us? Good morning. How are you guys? We're great. <laughs> We're Good great. To you. <laughs> yeah. Are you in London, Marcus? I wish. I'm in Mumbai. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so and, what, and because he's a doctor, he's always like working, it seems like from on your Facebook posts, working around the clock, helping people wherever you kind of can. Every time you've got an extra moment trying to help people with their crazy crisis right now yeah it's uh it's been a rough six weeks for us here in india but there's uh there's a little bit of respite coming it seems it's good how are you guys how, neil how are you long time very long time good uh very good yeah you know super happy to to get to connect in this way and hear about your second book right first one first official one authored only by me yep okay authored only by you okay I remember we talked about uh, you writing a book the first time I ever met you. That was what we spent. Uh, was this must be ten years ago, nine years ago? Uh, we we spent uh, two hours talking about a, a book at your club. Yes, that's very true. Absolutely. Yes. And now it has manifested. That's great, huh? Well, Dr. Rainey, congratulations. Um, Thank you. You mentioned that it appears there's a respite, a bit of a break in the cases. Is it that the the numbers of new cases are falling or? What do you yeah, see? We've come off the peak. Uh, we, we, we were at a peak of around 450,000 cases a day. Uh, we've now come off that. We're around 100, 110, something in that region. Uh, so we, we've fallen quite well below that. Uh, the metros have eased in terms of the congestion. We have this massive issue, which people around the world may have seen, with no access to beds, oxygen, medication doctors it was it was really chaotic for those uh, couple of weeks uh, and now that's calmed down rural india is where a lot of the pain and the challenges are which is why my wife and i we started this this medicine drive and that's just uh, that's really become viral we had no idea it would reach such scales here in india very grateful to people's uh, support uh, and um, yeah i think it's going to take some time for that to normalize Mm -hmm. Can you can you actually dive in a little deeper there? Yeah. For us? Please tell us and how how oh, yeah. are you getting support and how can people best support that? Effort? Yeah, yeah. The the idea was a very simple one. Um, and on May the first, I had uh, actually a member of our household staff. His son was diagnosed with with COVID nineteen. He tested positive on the RT PCR. So he called to say, can I bring the reports? I said, yes, of course. And as he was coming, I was chatting with my wife, uh, who, who Neil knows is also a clinician. And we were just talking about how we can help because the cost of some of these medicines are, are really expensive. 
And that's when I realized that in the apartment building that I live in, uh, I had three patients that I was seeing that had just uh, come off their treatment. They just come out of their isolation phase. So I put a message on the on our building chat group saying, guys, anyone with any leftover meds, just send it across to my house. And uh, if they're okay, I'll check them and then uh, I'll, I'll hand them to someone who needs it. And that was really the inception of this idea where we discovered that there's, in a country like India, where 45%, this is as per Brookings report, a Brookings Institute report, 45% of out-of-pocket healthcare costs is directly because of the cost of medicines. Uh, 92% of all medicines in India are wasted. And when we say wasted, what that means is after they expire in your drawer, they then get into the water, water table or into the food or through land, uh, land, landfills, uh, end up as environmental waste. So this was a very simple mechanism that we just asked anyone who has any leftover, unused, unexpired medicine, symptomatic relief, or medicines for COVID to, uh, to just put it in a little box. We started with these little shoe boxes in people's buildings. Uh, in our local area, we had 10 buildings that signed up. Uh, and now we, in, in five weeks, it's incredible. We are now active in 10 cities across the country. We've collected over 300 kilograms of medicines. Uh, we have more than a thousand volunteers. We've got huge partners, delivery partners, technology partners, uh, large organizations, corporates uh, who have now got involved with this. This is truly uh, one of those things which, which went viral. Uh, it just took over social media. People just were finding out about us. The phones wouldn't stop ringing, but I've worked very hard now with Reiner to, and our core team now to just streamline this entire process. So we've got one website. It's called medsformore.org. Uh, anyone can visit it. They just put in their details. We've got the reverse pickup now sorted, so you don't even have to leave your house. Uh, we get it picked up from your house, and it goes all the way to the NGOs. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're just uh, helping hundreds of thousands of lives now. It's just something which it's a citizen-level initiative. Not a single rupee has been donated, which I'm most proud of. Wow. Very so cool. from 10 shoeboxes now <laughs> at the start to yeah. this scale. That's fantastic. And um, you said there's uh, reverse pickup, so um, all people have to do is register online and absolutely the, absolutely. the medicines are picked up. Um, and then you distribute them to what, what NGOs uh, receive these medicines? Yeah, so what we've now done, um, because there are obviously lots of legalities to be cognizant of because we're involved mm -hmm. in medicine, there are lots of safety issues and the reach. So we've partnered with many large NGOs in the country. Uh, there, there are NGOs like Doctors For You, uh, the Karnataka National Health Trust, uh, Gunj, uh, many, many rotary clubs, uh, many NGOs that are, now have the mobile vans which are actually visiting uh, people in lower socioeconomic areas or rural communities. Uh, so the collective reach now of our NGOs is over 20,000 villages across the country. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, it's truly been a national effort. Well, congratulations. That's fantastic. I know we're still not done. <laughs> this may be just the beginning or the end yeah. of the beginning <laughs> or something of that sort. And, and though I didn't bring you on to talk about COVID in India, I'm hoping we can stick to that for a few minutes since you're on the front line and organizing a big volunteer effort. Um, is the country or the, the top doctors worried about 
um, you know, another mutation. How, I mean, what is it people are thinking? You're, you're kind of like at the nexus of a bunch of different things yourself. What's the general sentiment and how is it you're thinking about this now? So what we've clearly seen with the, uh, the Delta variant, as it's been renamed uh, a couple of days ago by the WHO, uh, the B1617.2 is that it is much more transmittable uh, and you know, anecdotally comparing it to the first wave uh, where I was actually working in slums myself as a, as a frontline volunteer. You know, if there was a patient, if there was one patient in the household, then it was restricted to that one person and the rest of them were able to be isolated or quarantined. This time around, if there's one patient, then every single person in that house has got COVID-19. Now, what's been lucky for us, uh, and I think globally as well, is that it's not the virulence which has increased. It's not the severity of the disease which has gone up. But looking at the transmissibility, because the denominator has increased, the number of people have increased, even though that percentage conversion remains the same. The, the number of people that require medical therapy, uh, ventilation, etc., has has just increased by a volume perspective. Uh, so that's been a big challenge for us in this country. And I urge a lot of the global communities that I see online, I understand the vaccine uh, rollout has been very successful, including countries like yours. I think the Biden administration over the last 100, 110 days have done an incredible turnaround. Even in the United Kingdom, uh, in 40% of the population in Israel, 92%, UAE, etc. But um, But this virus shouldn't be understated. Uh, we are arrived at this reality in India because of complacency and hubris, uh, which now proactively the policymakers are preparing for a possible third wave. Uh, there's a lot of conversations around the implications for children because they remain unvaccinated. And I urge all policymakers to continue looking at the trials for children and ensuring that that is expedited, uh, particularly for the developing world where the population percentage of young people is so large. Uh, in, in the US, you can achieve herd immunity by not vaccinating a single person under 12 years of age. In India, that's a physical impossibility. We just can't. There's about 50% of people under 18 here. So we need to really make sure that uh, the safety data comes out uh, for young people. And we prioritize that group now going forward. Uh, because I think from an evolutionary perspective, and you guys are much more closer to this in some of the RNA studies that you've been looking at and investing in, but my fear is that from an evolutionary perspective, we're showing this virus, our, you know, as for poker, we're showing them our hand with regard to what the vaccine can and can't do. And this virus is going to continue to put survival pressures on itself and may come up with new mutations in the next few, uh, next few months. So, um, so, so being very fast about this is, is the need of the hour. So I, I'm curious. We, we've asked a lot of experts on this, and I was very surprised by some of the, the answers. Um, and I guess whether you want to be or not, you're, you're an expert now. Um, when do you think the next major uh, pandemic will hit India that causes a shutdown? With SARS-CoV-2? No, just... The next wave of COVID, right? Well, not, I'm not talking about the next wave of COVID. You know, if there's a pause and it hits again, that's an, a new pandemic in my mind. 
um, even if it's six months later. Well, and we have to beat back the pandemic of complacency and hubris too, which seems not just isolated to India. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. yeah, I think if we look historically and um, so in 2016, I was invited to the World Economic Forum because I wrote a paper on the correlation between the climate crisis and public health. Uh, at the time, few people were recognizing that these two important things were actually tightly interwound and that the, the climate crisis was a key driver for the increasing frequency of these large endemics and localized pandemics in the last 20 years alone, looking back from SARS-CoV-1, which is called SARS from Singapore and, and, and South Asia, Asia Pacific. We then had MERS, we had, um, we had respiratory syncytial virus, we had swine flu. Uh, we've had, of course, in Africa, they had a number of outbreaks around uh, Ebola. Uh, and now, of course, we've got SARS-CoV-2. So we had about, I think, five major endemic slash pandemic situations in the last 20 years alone. It seems to me that these are increasing in frequency. It seems to me that they're clustering around certain types of viruses, coronavirus particularly, uh, seems to be one uh, which is uh, which is which is clustering. Now that's of course maybe a good thing from a viral perspective because coronaviruses tend to be fairly stable, especially compared to influenza as a virus, mm -hmm. uh, which mutates at a much faster rate. So mm -hmm. uh, I think we all need to sit up. Man-nature conflict, man-animal uh, uh, conflict is increasing. Uh, we are increasingly encroaching. Of course, uh, we will find out hopefully in the next six months the origins of this virus whether it was truly uh, natural or whether there was an element of, uh, of, of man interference with that. But I think for a variety of reasons, uh, this needs to be paid attention to. And institutions that I'm involved in, like the Atlantic Council and the World Economic Forum, a lot of them are now creating uh, a global pandemic response teams, a trigger mechanism, such that we don't have to wait for individual member states to trigger a mechanism to say, okay, there's something of concern. And uh, just as we're seeing with our own small effort in India here with medicines, can we create a system which has got multi-stakeholder involvement uh, where citizens themselves can activate a particular alarm to say, ah, there's something of nature, there's something interesting going on. For example, I quote this from the Atlantic Council, David Bray, who leads the Geotech Center, uh, he was particularly involved with the uh, Center of Disease Control uh, back in the first uh, coronavirus of SARS. And he was talking about how they noticed that the price of garlic actually skyrocketed during the, uh, the first SARS virus, uh, simply because garlic was seen as a natural home remedy for dealing with coughs and, and colds. So there are a number of these early signatures and signals that we can monitor at a global level, which through uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, cloud computing, um, could lead to these signatures that we could pick up on and then deploy the right sort of tests and tools, genomic markers, genomic tests, to try and identify the cause of, of concern. Um, so do you think we'll see a new pandemic in under 10 years? that asks us all to stay home? I think, um, I think that would, uh, there's a very, very high probability of that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any more specific thought about, is it, is it, you know, two years or is it 10 years or just under 10 years? 
I, I yeah, I, I think uh, Bill Gates says it's best. We, we underestimate what we can do in 10 years, uh, but we overestimate what we can achieve in one year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and, and so it was interesting. I think the, the average number we got, Chris, was somewhere between four and five years when we asked all these, these yeah. folks at the time, right? Yeah. Which I think was eye-opening to both of us because we weren't really thinking that could happen so so quickly. Well, so you're actually on the outside of, of the number if you're okay with 10 years, which is really crazy for us to think about. Yeah. Well, I think we learned a lot from this. Uh, sorry, Chris, Lucy. Oh, I was only going to say our, I think, Neil, um, bias is evident because the U.S. has kind of escaped um, the much of those major uh, endemic and, and pandemics that we've seen from bird flu to MERS. You know, we really had no incidents here um, that was uh, meaningful for us to deal with. So uh, we kind of skirted those, and that's why we were caught flat-footed here, for sure, in this case. But go ahead, uh, Dr. Rainey. I was just going to add that um, I think globally the scientific community has learned so much over the last 18 months, mm -hmm. right, from mm -hmm. new forms of testing to new platforms to develop vaccines uh, at speed, at scale, hopefully in the next uh, in the next few months, hopefully the year we can scale these production efforts. I think the communications between countries and between member states uh, have increased. I think uh, all nations have reinforced their healthcare infrastructure. Um, I keep talking about the grand realization of 2020, which was the competitive advantage that well-being plays in our lives that we realized and recognized at the individual level, at the organization level, and at the global systemic level as well. So we're seeing much more investment. So uh, even though the probability of that event may be sooner, um, and I hope it's not the case, but even if it may be sooner, I'm encouraged that there are, there are now a number of groundworks in place that can hopefully just be accelerated very, very quickly should that situation arise again, when that situation arises again. And so I guess this, maybe this is a good time to, to transition to talking about your book when, when you think about life and death so much, you know, living on... You know the edge of what what's possible it becomes even more important right um, and so maybe you want to take a moment I, I guess i'll introduce the the book more officially um at the human edge uh by uh, dr marcus rani i'm normally just used to calling you marcus so the, the doctor <laughs> <laughs> it was here weird to hear from chris um that's right i'll keep it formal neil you go ahead <laughs> <laughs> um it's a pleasure to have you. I know you listen to the podcast as well. And, you know, I know you kind of live your life in a different way, right? Like when I log on to Facebook, I completed another marathon or, you know, I decided to go be a doc at base camp in the Himalayas. Right? Like I'm always like, what's Marcus up to now? Like what is he doing? Okay. Uh, so it seemed only apt that uh, we'd get a chance to talk to you about that. The purpose of this podcast is literally for us to become better humans. Um, we can become better investors, which both Chris and I are, um, by just being better as a human. And so teach us, Marcus. <laughs> Becoming better listeners is the first step, right? <laughs> oh, man, that's a, that's a loaded question if there ever was one. Um, I've always been fascinated 
by this incredible biological piece of engineering that we've been given the amazing opportunity to inhabit for this life that we have on this planet. Uh, it started many, many years ago. I was, uh, before, I, before I finished my degree in medicine at UCL, I, I did a degree in, in human physiology. And at the time, I happened to be a, um, I happened to be a, a reserve force, uh, was in the reserve forces in the Royal Air Force uh, in the UK. And so working alongside these fighter pilots, I got the opportunity to see firsthand how even in the most extreme physical environments of you know, a, a jet aircraft traveling at that speed, doing what it does, G-forces, such a tight space, literally thousands of computational data points coming to you every second, they are able to do things with such surgical precision. And that sort of led me down this journey towards I'm trying to understand for myself, well, how is it that this body that we consider to be so frail, and particularly us in medicine, our entire effort, our entire energy is just focused on pathogenesis and disease, right? We call ourselves health, healthcare experts, but there's very little health in our care. It's mainly about uh, symptomatic relief, uh, which, is, which is important, of course. The extension of life is, is critical. But, but I wanted to know more. And so this started my journey. I, I got fantastic opportunities, which, which Neil knows, I've, I've always been someone that, that likes to push myself beyond my comfort limits, uh, mm -hmm. a growth mindset, uh, experience new things. We have comfort one life. Comfort Sorry? isn't a word I've heard you use, actually. <laughs> 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 no, it's not even like growth mindset. It's weaved into your like DNA that you're just gonna go see what you're capable of. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we've got one life, so we should enjoy it and, and try and accumulate as many experiences as we can. Uh, so I, I got to do lots of interesting things, uh, leading expeditions to Everest, uh, to the Arctic. I got invited to work at NASA, at Kennedy for a while on the Human Spaceflight Program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, personally, I've, I've been doing all these different biohacking experiments that have led me to long distance running and triathlons. Uh, it's something I enjoy doing with my wife and now my kid, our kids, they see us doing this and they pick it up at such a young age as well, which I think it's so important for any uh, parent to teach and, and, and hand over to the next generation. So this book um, is really just a, a, a testament of those learnings, uh, how it is that this body and the eventuality, my last chapter, which I titled Mind Over Matter, which was the realization I had that... Um, each chapter, by the way, focuses on a different extreme environment. So there's a chapter on climbing Everest, there's a chapter on sending a human being to Mars, there's a chapter on diving to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, running the full marathon, surviving in the Sahara, and trekking to the South Pole. And so each of the chapters is written in a way that you, the reader, are put in the shoes of the protagonist, and you physically go on this journey. Uh, from Everest Space Camp to Camp 1, 2, 3, 4, South Cole Balcony Summit, uh, all the way along the footsteps of, of Ernest Shackleton and, uh, and the great explorers, uh, Captain Scott, uh, hopefully one day the first female astronaut to Mars. So, so you physically go on this journey with them. And then as you go on this journey, I take you on an, on an intracellular journey within, inside of your physiology. What's going on at the cellular level? What are the challenges that your DNA, your epigenome, your transcription factors, the, the rest of your cellular machinery and your organ systems are having to face? 
and not just how they break down, but the beautiful aspect, which is how they adapt and how they excel and put you in this beautiful state of, of living at the human edge. Um, and the last chapter is just dedicated to the brain because I realized that, yes, we want to push this body, but we can only push this body when something magical happens in the brain. Uh, and through different neural circuitry changes and new mindsets, you're able to adapt and adopt to this new, new, uh, new way of thinking. And that unlocks the true, the true beauty of the human body. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess there's so much amazing here that uh, we can unpack. But, you know, when you started this journey to write the book, when you met Neil 10 years ago or so. Yeah, and the... it's not like you've been thinking about it longer than that. I just happened yeah. to meet him on a day where it was a conversation that came up and mm -hmm. we were talking. Did you have this conception of the book, uh, Marcus, and then kind of start the journey of going to Everest and then chapter by chapter, trekking, say, to the South Pole and uh, that kind of building out uh, of the book? Or did it change in, in its tone and uh, the way you developed it as it came to final? Uh, this is uh, this is the this is the third rewrite. I definitely had the structure that I wanted to connect the dots between these different extreme environments because um, you know similar to how I suppose healthcare delivery occurs, which is very siloed, mm -hmm. cardiology, neurology, endocrinology, etc. Um, extreme adventure sports, extreme medicine and, and looking after people in these different extreme environments is also pretty siloed. Mm -hmm. But because I had the opportunity to, to engage with multiple uh, aspects and research them at a first principle level, I began to see that there were certain dots that could be connected through this. So I definitely was, even the initial manuscript was focused on Yes, there were going to always be these six specific extreme environments and a comparison between them. Uh, but the original intent of the book was actually for medical students because uh, I dedicated this book to my, my two kids. And the reason I wrote this book is that I wanted to create a piece of work to inspire young minds to hopefully fall in love with science the same way that I've I love science. And I was very grateful to Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization. He wrote the afterword of the book and, uh, and he spoke about how it's time. And I think COVID and, and 2020 have shown all of us how it's time for letting science lead and how we need more scientists to step up and, and take responsibility uh, and roles of leadership in this world and for the new generation of young leaders to come forward with, with science and mathematics and engineering at the core of what we're trying to achieve for our species. So as the book evolved and I started to engage with publishers and actually started to then write it out um, and get feedback from people as well, I realized that the benefit of what I was trying to do would be increased by number one, uh, making the language more accessible. So I worked very hard at that. And then part of that accessibility then involves coming up with an interesting structure that would keep uh, someone who's not from the scientific realm, but who has an interest in science, mm -hmm. engaged and interested in the in the book itself. So that's where I decided, okay. And it, it literally started with when I first got into running uh, and I was 
writing that chapter on, on, on when I first did my full marathon and I was writing that chapter on, on running, what I discovered, well, okay, well, how about I write it as if I was actually running that race and then look at it, what is happening in my body as I was going through the different miles to completion. And that's where that idea for the, the vehicle came in and then, you know, it made sense. People liked it. So I then replicated it for the other chapters as well. <laughs> well, I'd hate to see your bucket list. <laughs> it seems like you had some of those ideas in mind, like thinking of extreme environments, obviously Everest. Um, are there any that you, any of those that you've missed, Marcus, or that you're hoping to, uh, you're going to run the Death Valley race or... <laughs> no, I'm not a big fan of I'm not a big fan of heat. It's ironic considering where I live, but uh, I, I love the cold a lot more. But what I what I uh, what I'm really keen on doing uh, in the very very short term in the next year is is to is to take my kids skiing, um, and uh, I'd love to do that with them. And, and Aiden, my son, my elder one, he's five, so he's old enough now. So we're very looking forward to hopefully around Christmas, New Year's, uh, to go up to the, the Kashmir Valley in India and, and get the kids on, on the skis. That's something I want to do. My wife and I have been dreaming of, uh, of, of doing a, a high-ish a high peak, maybe a 6,000-meter trek uh, in, in this year as well. But, but I think the, the, the final item on my bucket list, which would be incredible, and I hope to achieve it in, in my lifetime for sure, is, uh, is, to, go into, uh, is to, to go to the moon. Um, and hopefully one of my kids can be with me. Um, I keep telling my daughter that, that she can be a surgeon off one of the moons of Jupiter, and my son wants to be an electrician on the moon, so, um, so that would be great to see. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. What... Um... Just Marcus, board, let's go to the moon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's plenty on Earth, but there's also much more. But uh, Marcus, I was going to ask, what was a, a surprise for you coming in as an expert and looking at the extreme environments? I mean, I'm always truly um, awed by the our adaptability, by the brain's plasticity, by the the way we recover um, from especially extreme environments. Um, extreme situations. Um, what what really stood out for you? I don't know if there's one collective uh, memory that uh, you know casts itself across all of these different scenarios. But as you come and think back, oh, as you come now to completion of the book and think back on it, what really stands out as uh, something that really awed you as you went through this process? I think you know in my own personal journey, whilst uh, completing the full marathon was a physically monumental task for me. And I've got great memories from that day. It was in the city that I have grown up in here. I had my, my wife uh, and son. They ran the last one kilometer with me. Uh, so those, those were the great, great memories from completing that. But uh, it was actually afterwards. So, so, so Neil would know this. I, um, after I was a frontline medic um, in the first wave, I unfortunately contracted uh, COVID-19 myself, and I, I had it pretty badly. It was a very um, atypical case presentation. It wasn't diagnosed until the third week, by which time I had a multilobe pneumonia. That was okay, actually, for me. The challenge was I developed a strange, uh, almost Guillain-Barre uh, myositic picture where the virus started to attack the skeletal muscle cells in my, in my lower limbs. 
And I lost most of the power in my right leg and my left leg was pretty much a two, three out of five as well. I'm lucky my wife's a, 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 a physiotherapist, so I had that in-house counsel and rehab. But uh, it took me a very long time to get back on my feet. Uh, and as a runner and someone who's so physically active, it was very depressing because I had associated myself with just, you know, just being physically able to do anything that I wanted to do. I could wake up and just run how much I wanted. I could climb things, etc. So that was a very dark phase. Um, and the way I was able to think about it through a little bit of discipline was that this idea of resiliency is clearly something that we all talk about, especially through 2020 and the adaptability to identify the silver lining and all of those things that we read in, in, in books. But I thought, okay, now this is going to have to be my chance that I physically put a lot of these principles in practice. So I, I discovered, to my, I, I said to myself, I remember this one morning that, Marcus, how often is it that a runner gets the opportunity to run, to learn how to run again from beginning, from scratch? Because I literally, I remember the first time uh, she took me out for some fresh air. This would have been about six or seven weeks into the disease. I walked, uh, and we have this area called Marine Drive, which is this, uh, this promenade along the seafront here in South Bombay. And uh, I walked, uh, it took me an hour to do 2.5 kilometers. It was incredibly painful. It was a very, very slow walk, but I managed to do that. And I said, okay, now this is your turning point. This is what you now need to take control and not just be a victim of what you've gone through. And over the next four months, I worked very hard. Uh, I made a lot of changes to my diet. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm quite a disciplined individual anyway, but I, uh, I removed a lot of inflammatory foods. Um, mm -hmm. I really focused on my recovery and sleep. I started tracking my heart rate variability very closely using my, my wearable devices. I looked at my resting heart rate. Uh, we created a program of recovery for myself, lots of barefoot running, running on sand, uh, wet surfaces, etc. And what I was then most pleased about was in, uh, in late December of last year of 2020, uh, so five months after I was diagnosed, I completed, uh, it was January, so it was January, it was early January, uh, I completed a half marathon, but in a personal best time. Uh, and uh, and so that for me was, uh, and I teared up a lot at the end of that. And it was hard. It was just me and my friend, uh, and uh, and then Rhina joined in for the last. Uh, my wife Rhina, she joined in for the last 10k as well. Uh, and uh, and it was an official half marathon, but it was the 21.18 kilometers. Uh, so that for me was was showcasing to myself that uh, that anything is possible you can put your mind to it and with the discipline with the small hacks and you know through using science and data to help you get there uh we can achieve anything we want to i i, I even hate to say it this sounds maybe terrible after all the cool things you've done but what's next like where do you go right like, like that's not so terrible do you know, i mean you're you're roughly my age right i think uh, we're within a year or two of each other and yeah. i feel like you've already lived a few lifetimes so what is it what is it you i mean obviously it's obvious that, that your children light up your world right that's still clear to me um it's obviously that that you know when the, the few times i've heard you talk about your wife or the pictures i've seen you're like you know in wow that this person married you um yeah. So other than your family, which is a big like other than, 
what what other things do you think about accomplishing next? You know, where do you use that that newfound mental endurance that is, you know, something that people dream of? Um, I'm I'm ambitious. I like to achieve and do things uh, which help people, but it's not as though I create a list of things in my head. Um, for me, uh, and I can't remember which person said this, but it may have been, uh, I think there was that famous song called Sunscreen, uh, which played out in the late 80s, early 90s, us growing up, which, which said about some of the most interesting people at 40 still don't know what they want to do in their life. Um, which is, I'm almost 40, I'll be, I'll be 40 in a, in a year's time or so. So, uh, I, I honestly don't know. I just, I just, I'm always open to, uh, adventures and new life experiences. I, I, you know, I, I don't have a fixed path. What I love is, is the human body and biology. And I think that's allowed me to, to wear different hats in my life and do different things. Uh, I'm, I'm now an entrepreneur. I, I stepped back from my corporate responsibilities uh, late last year, and uh, I've founded, uh, I've co-founded two startups, both in the well-being space. One is a uh, a, a direct-to-consumer uh, well-being startup called Roots.Life, and the other is an enterprise SaaS platform uh, called Human Edge. Same as my book, it's all about working with large corporations and and creating programs. And technology solutions for the employees. So I'm uh, I'm deeply invested in in these two right now, and doing a fundraise for both of them, and, and building teams, and uh, and and learning all about entrepreneurship. So that's what I'm doing now. But that's just work. I mean, that's not how I define that's myself. Just work. <laughs> That's, that's, that's not and the things that happen along the way, like um, holding a Guinness World Record for backward running, are just accidental, I guess. Right, Marcus? Exactly. It's just part of experience. <laughs> How fast were you on that record? It was not about speed. It was about it was about uh, completing uh, the set distance that the the Guinness uh, team had subscribed. I think it was about seven hundred meters. Uh, and you had to do it uh, uh, twice successfully. We had three attempts, and we had to do it twice successfully in 30 minutes. It was for the largest group of people to race one another, running backwards. And when you say race, you were physically, and they had all these cameras set up with AI algorithms monitoring each individual. You were physically not allowed to even turn around to look. You actually had to keep your head uh, in, in, the, in the backward direction, I suppose. Uh, for looking forwards, running backwards, uh, and uh, and Munich held the record. There, there are four hundred and twenty people that had done it, and this was in Mumbai uh, four or five years, four years ago. Uh, I remember because um, we actually took Aiden, our firstborn. He was about uh, thirteen months old, and we had nowhere to leave him. So in the first attempt, I physically ran, pulling this pram backwards. Uh, and the Guinness record guy said, "No, you can't do that. This is a uh, this." So we got disqualified. For safety issues, so, <laughs> so and we left Aiden on the side, and then did the other. You just added Aiden as another life. Uh, yeah, running back. <laughs> so he technically also has the Guinness record because he participated in it in the first attempt. So, um, so that's a great story to tell his, his school. <laughs> what what record a holder! Yeah, Thirteen yeah. months. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. So said, there's a Guinness record inside of a Guinness record. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Marcus, where can people continue to follow like 
your world and your life. I mean, your startups, the, you, you know, the papers you write, the things you're going to continue to do, the speeches you give are incredible. Where, where can people follow you? Where can people find you? I try to be as active as I can on social media and particularly LinkedIn and Instagram are the two platforms that I use a lot of. Uh, my handles are all the same now. It's at Doc M. Rani, my surname. That's M-R-A-N-N-E-Y, D-O-C-M-R-A-N-N-E-Y, at Doc M. Rani. So I'm, I'm, at, I'm very active on that. And I'm very excited. I'm, I'm just about to put together a YouTube channel which will be going live in winter um, where I started to uh, um, create some more interesting content, talking with academics and scientists and some of these extreme athletes that I've had the opportunity of working with or following their, their adventures for the last many years. So um, I'm, I'm trying to create some content around that. So, um, so yeah, but, but social media is where I'm putting stuff together now. Uh, and, and, and Marcus, I take it uh, you comment, you reply to most people who reach out to you. Oh, I, 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 I try to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. It was uh, inspiring, truly. And I hope you'll be back before you break some other record or work on breaking another record. <laughs> Spend some time with us because, uh, you know, I, I kind of just think about you as my crazy friend. Um, but to, to, to hear and the feelings see mutual, you. Neil. That's how I. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but to hear you and spend the time with you today in this format, you know, truly inspiring. We'd love to have you back. No, I, I really appreciate this. I love listening to your, your podcast, uh, both Chris and Neil. It's, it's for someone who loves science the way that I do to have, uh, to have people with an investing mindset put such rigor into the science behind every, in every investment. It's a, it's a great joy, and, and I learned so much from all the folks that you have on the show. So, so thank you for putting these things together every week. Well, you're now among them. Thank you, Dr. Rainey. Really, Marcus, it's great to have you, and it's wonderful to meet you. I'm sure thank our you. audience feels the same. So thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thank you. Take care, guys. See you. All right. Bye -bye. Cheers. Thank you. Bye.